Hey, uh, our kids can be dismissed this morning. Uh, Welcome to Covenant Church. My name's Weston. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, little did you guys know, we're running a promotion this year. And if you attend the week after Easter, we immediately upgrade you to platinum status in our membership levels. I don't know what that means. Maybe you don't have to work kids anymore or something like that. No, we're glad y'all are here today. Um, In this post-Easter week, we're going to continue to explore the story of Jesus following the resurrection, and we're going to look at a couple of key moments that happen uh, after the resurrection, but before his ascension into heaven. And, um, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about around here is incarnational ministry. It's something that we deeply value. Um, and, and so we often bring it up. And basically what that means for us is that as individuals and as a gathered community of faith, that we would seek to emulate Jesus in the way that we live life, in the way that we do ministry, that we would become like Jesus to our city. I once heard an author describe this as the conspiracy of little Christ's that Jesus' model for the way that we share the gospel is by um, becoming more like him and then going out as individuals and as communities and kind of infiltrating our world with the good news message of what he has done for us on the cross. And while none of us are Jesus, we have all been called to emulate him. And a key verse for us there is John 2021, where Jesus says to his disciples, in the same way that the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. But while I believe the call to become like Jesus is a call that's placed on all believers, I was reminded this week uh, in a book that I was reading that if we aren't careful, we will focus more on what we are doing rather than on who we are to be becoming. We'll focus more on what we're doing rather than who, on who we're becoming. And this is hard for us to avoid because we feel like the doing realm is the realm where we have the most control over our lives, our actions, our behaviors. And this is in contrast to what we could maybe call the being realm or the internal realm. It is far harder for us to feel as if we have control over what is happening on the inside, our our thoughts, our feelings, things that bubble to the surface. The, The problem, though, is that just doing good things, just acting the right way, it is not the whole of what it means to emulate Jesus. Just doing things that are good does not necessarily make us more like Jesus. Because if that's true, then the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, would be more about our action as opposed to what God is working out inside of us. Paul talked a lot, the apostle, about mental transformation. He talked about renewing our minds. And it seems clear to me uh, as I read Paul, that, that he believed that true disciples, true followers of Jesus weren't just people who were behaving better or who were behaving more like Jesus in some way. They were actually people who were taking on what he called the mind of Christ. Not just the actions of Jesus, but the motives, the intentions, the love of Jesus. 
But we don't just suddenly wake up one day with the mind of Jesus. And I fully believe that there are times when God wants our good works, our good intentions to fully and completely fail. Because it is in the midst of total failure where we most recognize our inability and our great need of him. And it's also in the midst of failure where we find and perhaps most fully come to understand the grace that he extends to us. And listen, I believe that grace is perhaps... Understanding grace, experiencing grace is perhaps the primary catalyst for developing a deep and abiding love for Jesus. And so until you have this experience of true grace, which is often born out of failure, it will be difficult to abandon yourself fully to Jesus. Until you come to this place where you recognize what he has done for you, And that you could not do it for yourself. You couldn't sacrifice enough. You couldn't be moral enough. You couldn't be good enough. You couldn't do enough on your own. He has done something for you that you could never acquire. Until we come to the place where we understand we are undeserving of that. And yet he gives it to us freely. That grace. It will be difficult to give yourself fully to him. In other words, what I'm saying today is one of the greatest things perhaps that could ever happen to you might be for you to fail miserably. Peter knew this all too well. Uh, If you remember the story of Peter in the Gospels, Peter was this guy who became a disciple of Jesus and he was characterized by being kind of brash and arrogant. He seemed to kind of wear his heart on his sleeve. He, he often said these very grandiose things and, oh, Jesus, I will go anywhere for you. I'll, you know, with the ends of the earth. You know, G- Peter was that guy who was just very passionate, very emotional in following Jesus. And if you recall, he had this massive failure. Peter is in the midst of, of, of declaring all of these things that he's going to do for Jesus. And Jesus says to him, no, Peter, you don't un- understand. You're actually going to come to a place where you deny you even know me. And not only are you going to deny that you know me, you're going to do it multiple times. And Peter goes, ne- never, absolutely not. That's never going to happen. And, and guess what? Jesus knows everything. And so it happens. He denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And so he experiences this massive personal failure. The thing that he said he would never do is exactly what he does. The position that I would assume he never wanted to find himself in is the position he finds himself in. And he is filled with shame and guilt, as you can imagine. And, and yet we come to this scene following the resurrection. And if you would turn with me, John 21, fourth book of the New Testament, John chapter 21 and this incredible thing happens. The, uh, some of the disciples who, who were fishermen by trade are out fishing on the sea. And, and Jesus shows up on the shore and he calls out to them in the boat. They're not catching anything. He tells them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And so they do and then they catch this unbelievable catch of fish. Uh, so many fish that they can't believe that the nets didn't break. 
And Peter, again, brash, uh, makes quick decisions, uh, realizes that it's Jesus on the shore, jumps out of the boat and, and swims to shore to be with Jesus. And finally, the others arrive. They're dragging this enormous net of fish, going, thanks a lot, Peter. And Jesus has prepared breakfast for them. I'd love to do a study sometime on, on just food and the importance of food in the New Testament uh, around Jesus because often some of the, the most pivotal moments happen around the table. They happen around the meal. But we get to verse 15, and, and this is, as you'll see, after breakfast, and, and Jesus has this private conversation with Peter. Verse 15 When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And he, Jesus, said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. In one of my Bibles, the heading that has been added to this section says, Jesus reinstates Peter. Which, if you'll recall, uh, at one point, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to build his church on him. Jesus tells Peter, I'm going to build the church on you. You're going to be a primary catalyst for the growth of the early church. And, and so, the idea here uh, in this heading in my Bible is that somehow... Peter had lost maybe this position with Jesus. And this is a moment where Jesus kind of reaffirms Peter's commitment to the cause. But I think it's an inaccurate interpretation of of this text. One, it insinuates that Peter's failure had caused him to somehow lose favor with Jesus, which I don't believe is true. It also insinuates that Peter had occupied some place of moral or behavioral superiority or perfection prior to his denial of Jesus. That that Peter had occupied some kind of place of position and and yet because he failed, he, he totally lost that. As if Jesus had said that he would build his church on Peter because of Peter's ability. Because of Peter's good works. Because of Peter's behavior. Which I don't think is true. A couple of key passages here. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 3. The writer of Hebrews says, Consider him, Jesus, who endured 
from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This is the Proverbs. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Should we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Or how about Peter's own words that Luke read just a few moments ago, where he says, um, we've had this resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's given us an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for us. And, and that ultimately in this we should rejoice even though we have been grieved by various trials. That word trial doesn't just mean like persecution. Like this is this broad term. A trial could be any kind of negative or terrible season that you go through. You've been grieved by trials, but but look, so that, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, So the idea here is that seasons of trial... Seasons of failure, seasons where things aren't going the right way, seasons of persecution, seasons where things don't happen the way that you want them to, seasons of grief, that all of these should be seasons that we embrace as opportunities for growth in Christ. And, And to recognize that in the midst of this, as the writer of Hebrews says, if you experience discipline in the midst of one of these seasons, if you experience, man, man, I've got to change, or I've got to repent, or God's calling me out of my sin and my junk, that that is for your good. Even though it's not fun, even though it's not what you want to go through, he's doing it not for your happiness, but for your holiness. So that you might become more like him. And and here's the bottom line. When you experience that stuff, it is a sign, according to the writer of Hebrews, that God has adopted you into his family as children. It's a sign that he is treating you as one of his children. And you may go, well, he's not treating me the way I want to be treated. No, but he's treating you as a good father who is forming you and molding you into his likeness, into the person that he would have you be. Which is why this death to self 
is a key component of this sanctification process. This taking up your own cross is a key component of this process. Letting go of your wants, letting go of your mind, and taking on his wants and his mind. Here's the point. This scene that we are witnessing over breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee is not Jesus saying, well, Peter, I guess if you're really sorry, I will build my church on you after all. No, this is a pivotal and intentional moment in which Jesus is molding Peter into the man that he would have him be. And this is what leads Peter to later say, no, no, no. Listen, the testing of your faith is one of the best things that could ever happen to you. He wanted Peter to come to the end of himself. He wanted Peter to fail miserably. He wanted all of Peter's brash arrogance and haughtiness to come crashing down. I will never deny you, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, we'll see about that. When I was about nine or ten years old, our, our church um, hired this stud pastor. And I don't remember a whole lot about this season, but, but this guy uh, had been a professional football player. He had played for the Jets in the 70s. He had then uh, gone to law school and passed the bar and practiced law for a while, and then had gone to seminary and gotten a master's degree, and then had gotten a PhD. So this guy just had this incredible resume. And I remember it was controversial at the time because he was going to be paid more than any pastor in the history of our church. And I don't remember exactly how much it was, but I believe it was over $100,000. So this is in Minden in the early 90s, and, and this guy's probably going to be making more money than anybody, you know, or most people in the church. Um, and a few years into his pastorate there, I, I will never forget uh, him standing on stage with his wife, both weeping because he had had an affair. And I'll never forget him standing on stage and resigning from the church. Um, and just how disappointed people were. Because here was this guy that we had, we had put so much into. You know, like, like he was supposed to be the best of the best of the best. Like this was the guy who was supposed to make our church like as successful as it could be. Uh, like this was the guy that we were putting a ton of our trust in. And, and we thought that if anybody can do it, he can do it. And, and yet there he was, not long after, bawling on stage. And I, I, I was, you know, I don't know, 10 or 11 at the time. Like, this left a significant impact on me as a child, just watching this. And I didn't fully understand what was happening or, or what was going on. But it was clear to me that, that, some, that this person had failed and that he had let people down and that people were disappointed in him. And so a few years later, when I felt like I wanted to go into vocational ministry, like that God was leading me in that way, for whatever reason, this was still like an image that was etched in my mind. That like no matter what, I never want to be that guy, right? I never want to be standing on stage in front of people going, man, I've totally blown it and I'm out. Um, 
And so fast forward a few years, uh, I, I, I'm ordained when I'm 19, I start pastoring a church when I'm 19, um, I finish college, I go, well, you know, I've got to continue on in my career, pro- you know, progression as a pastor. So I got married, moved to Dallas, uh, got in what I thought was one of the best seminary programs I could get into, you know, and I, I couldn't afford it, but I did it anyway. Um, and got a job at a, a, a huge, influential church, moved to one of the wealthiest parts of Dallas. Um, and about uh, eight months to a year after we moved there, my wife came home one day and said, I'm having an affair and I'm out. And within the next couple of days, I came home and her stuff was gone and she was gone. And I didn't know any divorced pastors. And I knew of some situations like this where the churches had said, hey, we love you, we're sorry this has happened, but, you know, we just can't have you as a leader here anymore. And so I thought that within the span of a couple of days, and not because of a decision that I had made, that not only was my marriage over, but my career was over. Because I felt for certain that the leaders of our church were going to say, hey, hey, like, yeah, this is terrible, but you need to go, like, why don't you go take care of that, you know? Um, and so obviously there, there's a long story there. It was one of the worst seasons of my life. Um, but prior to this point, I, I think I had had a level of arrogance in my life that probably would have put Peter to shame. When, when I started pastoring a church when I was 19, I think I thought in the back of my head, well, of course these people want me to be their pastor. I'm awesome. And now I, I'm suddenly in this position where, in my mind, I'm that guy on stage going, I'm out. And I went and sat down with our lead pastor, fully expecting for him to go, hey, you know, you know, we'll, we'll find someone else to do this. And what I found instead was grace. What I found was a church that poured out their love to me in the midst of a, of a terrible season, but, but also went after my wife and like tried to bring her back into the fold and, and, and pushed me in doing the same thing. And, and unfortunately, she was like, she wasn't interested. She was out. Um, and she filed for divorce a few months later. And I thought, you know, well, this church somehow has, has seen fit to keep me on, but I'm never going to be able to go anywhere else. You know, no, no one else is ever going to want me to do this. And amazingly, I continue to experience grace. Grace after grace after grace. And, and, and the thing is, is that I never, uh, I, I don't know that I'd ever experienced it in that way until that point in my life. Even though I knew the gospel, even though I had this mental understanding of what Jesus had done for me, it wasn't until someone else, in the midst of me going, you know what, I, I probably need to recuse myself. I need to step away. I, you know, like, because in the eyes of some people, maybe I'm not fit for this. Um, in the midst of that, to have people say, we love you and we want you here, 
um, it opened my eyes to what Jesus has done for all of us in a way that I never had seen it before. And so, in the midst of this grace, I, I, told, I told a friend the other day that it was like the greatest, worst season of my life. I would have these moments where I'd be standing around in a group of people and somebody would go, hey, where, where's your wife been? I haven't seen her in a while. And it's just like, oh. And there was this point where I clearly remember feeling like I had, a, I had this like crossroads like choice to make. Like it was kind of almost like the angel and devil appeared on my shoulder. And it was this moment where I felt like, hey, if I ever want to get off of this Jesus boat, like if I ever want to step out of ministry, if I ever just want to go do whatever I want to do, like this, this is the moment. Like a lot of people probably wouldn't fault me. And yet I, I just, like I felt so strongly that that, that would be the absolute wrong decision for me. Um, and so I, I say that to say there has probably never been a season in my life that has been um, as shaping um, a season that has grown me a season that has made me more aware of my great need for Jesus than that season. And one of the things that I've also become aware of is that I experienced the grace of Jesus through the grace of other people. People who were emulating him, right? People who were modeling what he has modeled for us. This moment of Jesus saying, do you love me? Well, if you love me, then go feed my sheep. Go make disciples. Matthew 28, seemingly after perhaps this scene on the shoreline, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus not only with Peter, but with all of the disciples, sends them out to tend, to feed the sheep. To bring more sheep into the fold. To train them, to instruct them, to disciple them. Growing up, we didn't talk about we talked about people being Christians, but we didn't talk about people being disciples. The disciples were the guys in the Bible, right? And, and yet what Jesus has sent us to do is to be disciples who make disciples, right? To continue this progression. If we say we love him, if we say that we're following him, then what he has sent us to do is no different than what he sent them to do. 
because we have become the product of what he sent them to do if we are followers of him. So a disciple is not like some upper tier of Christian, right? It's not some next level of Christian. A disciple is somebody that has chosen to follow Jesus with their life in the same way that Peter and James and John and all these guys followed Jesus with their life. They left things behind. They sacrificed. They gave him their lives. And, and so they became disciples. They linked up with the master rabbi. If you are somebody who has linked up with Jesus, if you are following Jesus in your life, if you're somebody that would say, yeah, I love Jesus, well, then he sent you. He sent you to be him to your neighborhood, to your workplace. And, and I think, guys, I think he has pre-wired us with this innate desire to emulate I think it's something that we are just uh, naturally predisposed to do. And often the enemy takes over and, and uses that to our disadvantage. I read this fascinating article this week in the New Yorker that, that was about <laughs> hashtag van life culture on Instagram. So bear with me. Uh, there has basically been this explosion of people on social media who live in their Volkswagen vans. It's kind of like the tiny house thing. Uh, no mortgage. Uh, we travel around the country. We go to amazing places. We go surfing. Um, you know, we're drinking lattes and doing yoga on the roof of the van while overlooking the Grand Canyon. Uh, we post beautiful pictures of our amazing lives. And uh, it's so prevalent that there has emerged this sub-industry of shops that work on and refurbish Volkswagen vans. Like this industry is booming. Uh, this junk van from the 70s that would have cost you $3,000, you know, 10 years ago might now cost you $30,000. Like it's, it's become that big of a thing. And, and what's happening is that large companies have started sponsoring these folks on Instagram to place their products in their Instagram posts. So, so not only uh, is this girl doing yoga on top of her van in the middle of the redwood forest with like a sun flare in the background, but there's also a nice Yeti cooler sitting next to the van, and, and she just happens to be wearing this particular brand of, of athleisure apparel, right? And this is because, this is because marketers know and understand our natural propensity to envy the lives of other people, right? Like that explains social media in many ways. That explains Pinterest, it explains Instagram. We love going, oh man, look at that. I need that. I want that. Why didn't my life look like that? Those people seem far happier than we are. Another thing recently is this minimalism thing. Y'all watch this minimalism documentary? It's, uh, so um, it's all about getting rid of, of all of this junk you have in your house and really narrowing it down to the bare bones essentials. And this documentary is about these two guys who've just gotten, they, you know, they quit their high-stress jobs. Uh, they've gotten rid of all of this junk in their house. They've downsized everything. Expenses are way lower than they've ever been before. And now they are happy. 
They're happy, everybody, because they've gotten rid of all of these things. Uh, all, the, all the crap that they had before, that made them unhappy. But now not having stuff makes them super happy. I hope that you're realizing that that's still materialism. It's still materialism. You're either finding your happiness in having a million pairs of shoes, or trying to, or you're trying to find your happiness in having one pair of custom-made $1,000 shoes that, you know, I'm not going to have to buy a bunch of shoes now. I just have this one pair of shoes, and I love them, and I'm never going to have to buy shoes again for the next 20 years. I can just get, you know, it's the same thing. When you're looking for your identity or your happiness in what you have materially, it's all materialism, whether there's an abundance or a lack of abundance. And that's because we have this problem with our identity. Like, we, we don't know where our, where our identity is, and so we're looking for it in stuff, in other people, in the lives of other folks. And, and we forget, even though many of us realize, we forget that, that a lot of people on social media are portraying a facade of a carefree or stress-free or opulent life. Um, and, and listen, we have to realize that, and we have to channel those desires into Jesus, Right? If we don't find our peace and our joy and our love and our hope and our identity in Jesus, we will not find it anywhere else. You can go buy a VW van. God bless you. But if that thing is your identity, it will ultimately leave you looking for the next thing. It will ultimately leave you dissatisfied and frustrated. So if the garment or the house or the job or the car or the stuff or the lack of stuff, if that is you, then you will be unsatisfied. Listen, Jesus has sent us to be him to our neighborhoods, our workplaces, the places we inhabit. And every day, second by second, I think he's asking us, do you love me? Do you love me? One of the things that's interesting to me about the story in John with Jesus on the shore is that we get to the very end of that section and he's asked Peter that question three times and his final statement to Peter is just this. He looks at him and he says, follow me. Follow me. Now, what's interesting about that is that that's the same thing, same basic thing that Jesus said to him three years prior to that. Follow me. And you would look at Peter's life and you would say, this is a guy that's followed Jesus, right? He gave up his family, gave up his job probably, he gave up his livelihood, he gave up his home, and he linked up with Jesus and literally started geographically following him around. Where Jesus went, he went. And three years later, and not just this one sin failure, but probably a multitude of sin failures later in his life, Jesus is still looking at him going, follow me. Guys, if this was something that Peter needed to hear over and over again, you better believe it's something we need to hear over and over again. And I think every day, Jesus is asking us, are you going to follow me? Are you really going to do it, right? Because I look at your life, 
And what I see is you're really trying to follow all of these other things. And yeah, you go to church, right? Yeah, you maybe read the Bible every now and then. Maybe you go to, you know, a Bible study group or you go to a community group, you do whatever. But, but your life outside of those events, are you really going to follow me? Are you really going to give me everything, right? Are you really going to sacrifice? Are you really going to take up your cross? And here's the deal. I think he has called us to live enviable lives. I think he's called us to live lives that other people look at and go, man, what is that? I want that. But not because of what we own or where we live or where we vacation or because of how much money we make or because of the position we have. I think he's called us to live lives that are enviable because they stand in stark contrast to mainstream culture. Lives that aren't enviable because, lives that are enviable because we are people who are at peace, no matter who's in the White House. We are people who are at peace, no matter what else is going on in our world. We aren't worried about all of that. We aren't scrambling to get ahead. Uh, We aren't scrambling to make ourselves great. We're not constantly going after more stuff. We're not constantly trying to find our identity in things, lives where we truly have hope, and that hope does not come from something that could be here today and gone tomorrow. I think Jesus has called us to live those kinds of lives. But those are lives that we can't just do because of our action, right? Those are lives that we wind up living because of the work that he's doing within us. And until we submit our lives to him, until we give him control of our lives, we can try to put on a good show, but it's not really happening. We will crash and burn. But that could be the best thing to ever happen to you. Because it's in those moments, much like Peter, where we realize, oh, wait a second, I can't actually do this. And that's part of the point. Part of the point is the fact that he's already done it. And that he's just saying, are you going to follow me? Do you really love me? Let's pray. Father, my nature is to um, is to do the very thing that I'm saying that we shouldn't do. My nature is to look at other people, um, what they have where they live, what their children do. My nature is to look at them and to say, oh man, their life seems so much better than mine. And I think that I often buy into the lie that that is true or the lie that if my life was a little bit more like them that somehow I would be happier. And Father, I just want to I declare to myself this morning that that is not true and that the only place where true happiness, true joy that's abiding, that's not fading, that's undefiled, God, that lasts forever, it can only be found in you. And Father, I pray 
as we read this morning, that your, um, your discipline of us, that we would receive that gladly and willingly, Father, that we would repent, that we would live in the victory that you've called us into in Christ Jesus, um, and that we would submit everything to you, Father, that our lives would be changed. And we thank you that you treat us like your children. We thank you that you've adopted us into your family and that you don't leave us hanging out there, Father, that you want us to become more like you. And God, that you are seeking to mold us and form us, to refine us into the people that you would have us be. And God, I pray that we would just continually learn to submit to you and learn to cooperate with you in that process rather than pursuing our own path. Father, we thank you for the hope that the resurrection brings. We thank you for the fact that we could never do this on our own and thank God you've done it. Thank God that Jesus sacrificed so that we might have hope. We love you, Father. It's in your name we pray.